So this week's guest is one of the most fascinating people I have talked to on the show, with all due respect to my previous guests. Um, And before we get to him and hear about the topics that we're going to discuss today, I wanted to tap into the Hive newsroom and bring in my editor, John Kelly, just to talk about some of the crazy news that happened this week. John. Hey, Nick. It's been a bananas. It's been a bananas day, man. Um, I'm I'm kind of exhausted. I'm I'm kind of um, I'm kind of worked up. I'm on like my, you know, probably uh, ninth cup of coffee. Uh, we were trying to to close a, a really great piece last night uh, by T. A. Frank, who was on the ground traveling around Alabama for these crazy, surprising final 36 hours of the Roy Moore loss that I think none of us saw coming and in, in, in fact Tom was in more headquarters at 10 p.m. and was you know texting me at the very moment when the, the New York Times needle went from you know from like 50 50 to to like 70 percent Jones and he just said the air fell out of the room and so we're we're just you know we're all figuring it out today but it's been bananas I, uh, um, I I had a funny moment. I was um, uh, I was at an event and I uh, was on a bus with a bunch of people coming back and we hadn't had access to our phone all day and uh, and we checked our phone. It was seventy one percent reporting and it's it seemed like Moore was going to win and everyone was like just dejected and like just couldn't believe it. And then all of a sudden, driving up the freeway, someone in the back yelled. Jones won, and the whole bus just started cheering. Uh, and then, you know, we uh, we were all in, in shock. But but it, it's definitely it's definitely a surprising but good week. Well, I feel like it's sort of how we were supposed to feel on November 9th last year that that the the, the forces of, of some form of, of societal decency prevailed upon some form of uh, evil. And I'm just using that as a as a kind of catch-all phrase for alleged pedophilia, homophobia. Veiled racism and, and uh, anti-Islamic uh, sentiment. Just you know, to to just to, to pick a word. Um, but I gotta say, and I don't want to be cynical about this, but I I do fear a little bit that some of the liberal and media chest thumping that we've been hearing for the last 18 hours is a little premature. When I looked at the numbers last night and then through today, you know, if it weren't for an Alabama senator's insistence that people write in a third party or, or, or non-ticket candidate were not for an extraordinary ability for um, uh, the DNC to rally uh, the African-American community in, in certain parts of the state, particularly uh, Jefferson County, were not for President Obama's ability to robocall people, then a Democrat would have lost two somebody who's been accused of multiple uh, instances of, of preying upon teenagers and, and someone who's who's you know been been very open about their well, well, general hateful takes. Well, so so it's, it's terrifying. So what, one question I have um, uh, is: Do you think that this means 2018 is a possibility for the Democrats, or is it still not? It's still to be determined. Well, it's funny. Rick Santorum was quick to say after the eggs, after the polls closed last night that he, he, he didn't think that 2018 was in play. But if you look at the states where, um, you know, the, the purple states, there, there's absolutely an opportunity for Democrats. I, I, I think we, we've all seen Wolf Blitzer and John King at the map enough in the next 24 hours to realize that it, it's very possible that the, the Democrats can, can take both chambers in 2018. What's funny, ironic, or just, sort of, you know, 
crudely strange is that on some level, the Republicans were in a worse position if if more had won, because um, you could already uh, effectively feel the lawn posters and T-shirts uh, being printed with party of, of predation on them. And, it, you know, it's a seat that, that goes up in a few years anyway. So it would have been relitigated. You know, Jones is, uh, as, as Trump tweeted in, in the wee hours, you know, Jones is not in here for six years. He's only here for a couple of years before he's, he's going to be up for reelection, kind of like Scott Brown uh, in the early part of Obama's term. But it, it does seem like the Republicans recognize that, that they're you know, uh, majorities uh, across D.C. are in peril, and that's why we're seeing on the top of Drudge, Rush Rush, pass this tax bill. I was I was on Drudge because I was just reading about a, a penguin who's the size of a human being swimming on the, the I saw the Australia. penguin story that was the size of the human being. I, I was curious about that. He's actually uh, exactly he my size. A, what, four foot two? No, no, he's, he's five, eight and a half. Um, five, eight and uh, a half. But it says rush, rush, tax um, bill by Xmas. So I, I think I think that the Republicans are freaked, and I think that they should be freaked big time. And I think I think Trump's also pretty freaked. I think that one of the, one of the takeaways is that the the, the sexual harassment Me Too scandal, uh, Me Too movement, pardon me, has um, uh, has now reached a, a, a level of um, of outcry where the president might not be immune. So we'll see. Well, so last question before we jump into uh, to my guest um, is, so one of the things that uh, uh, I saw, I try not to look at Twitter, but I was stuck on a bus for a couple of hours yesterday, and um, and I saw Trump tweet that, you know, it's all because of the mail-in votes, which of course he was saying that he only endorsed uh, more a couple of days ago and that his endorsement was a little late and therefore he he would have won if he'd have done it earlier. And then, of course, there was the there was another follow-up tweet again today um, where he... I mean, there's just tweets all the time about this, but but it, I got the sense that, um, uh, that in Trump's, you know, ridiculous mind that he believes um, that... Uh, um, that he would have, that these people, that more Luther Strange or whatever would have won if it, um, it had had Trump have endorsed at the right time, and that uh, that it has nothing to do with Trump. Do you think that he believes that? Do you think that that's what's going on inside his head? One very smart point that our old colleague Ashley Parker made last night on TV after the race was called is that Trump likes winners. <laughs> Trump is in for winners, and I think that. The terrible things that Moore has said, the terrible things Moore has done, and the terrible things that I'm very positive are being thought inside Moore's thick skull are of no interest to Donald Trump. I, I think that he is uh, quite evidently furious that he's been humiliated, that he he picked Big Luther, that he picked Moore, and that he's over two in the state. And I, and I really do think, without getting hyperbolic, I do think that he feels on some level like he is like he's playing golf and, and he keeps shanking the ball. He just can't hit one straight, whether it's, you know, Obamacare or fumbling to, to, to get the uh, legislation passed for the debt ceiling. These two losses, you know, maybe he'll, he'll finally get a victory with tax reform. It certainly seems very likely that um, that a form of the bill will pass. But I, I don't think that he is in any way concerned with the real tension that at place in Alabama, it's a big deal. You know, it's essentially a, a proxy war. I think what he's really, really terrified about is that 
it looks bad for him. It looks like he is a loser and that he can't endorse, he can't make winners, and that it's uh, that that Doug Jones won only on account of a technicality, which, by the way, like asterisk, could be true. I think if you look at the the, the write-ins, it was like 1.9%, and and Jones won by about you know I think less than two percent. So it's it did play a significant role, um, but so did so many other things, um, including our, our cultural awakening. Ah, oh, terrifying. All right, well, let's jump into uh, to my guest this week. Um, it's Tim Wu. Uh, he's a law professor at Columbia University, and um, he is best known uh, for actually coming up with the phrase network neutrality in 2003. The conversation's amazing. We're going to talk about net neutrality. We get into Trump and our attention deficit disorder, um, lots of different topics um, along those lines. Um, so, uh, so, so let's jump right in. So I am sitting in Tim Wu's office at Columbia University, surrounded by more legal books than I could probably count. Can you tell us a little bit, tell our listeners who you are and sure. and uh, and why you have such a beautiful office? <laughs> uh, I'm a uh, law professor at Columbia. Um, I you know, write about communications, tech, things like that. Uh, I guess I got to know Nick um, because I've been involved in net neutrality and politics around tech. Well, and, well we, you know. we met actually at a, a a book signing event. We were both signing our books. It oh, was yeah. like yeah. it was like nine years ago, uh-huh. and people signed more of your book. Than, you signed more of your book than I did of mine, which uh, shows that you're much cooler than I am. Uh, but you, we've both written three books since then. It's true. And so I'm surprised you... we're not enemies after that <laughs> showdown. <laughs> yeah. Well, go look at your Amazon reviews. You'll see some uh, some nasty ones from me. So you've you've got the um, the master switch, yeah. which was about uh, the rise and fall of uh, information empire. Okay. Big long cycles of of the great American tech companies like AT and T, uh, broadcast networks, film industry, like you know the the old school information empires and, and what how happened they to fell. Them. Yeah. And so I, so I want to talk about that a little bit and 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 how that kind of affects Amazon and things sure. like that. Um, and then you have your, your newest book, The Attention Merchants, which is? Uh, that's a book about the rise of the industries that uh, harvest human attention to, to make their money. Um, pretty much everything on the pretty internet. Pretty much everything on the internet, but also uh, the rise of, of advertised-based newspapers, radio networks, and um, you know how this strange business model kind of became part of everything. And so we'll get to that about and how that relates to Trump and how he's ex- expertly well not just Trump but you know Facebook and all the other places sure. and then you have a new book you're working on that's right uh, it's called the curse of bigness okay and it's a it's a book about revitalizing progressive antitrust you know break them up <laughs> style trust busting so so before we get to all these things um uh th- one thing that you're famous for does this bother you that you're famous for this about about coming <laughs> up with the term net neutrality uh, you know, I feel like one of those bands that has like one song. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not Angel Angel in the Centerfold or something. But you know, Jay Giles' band had like yeah. this one song, and there's yeah. a little bit like, okay, that's great, all this new stuff. But what about net neutrality? Yeah, what there's about little... that one song? Can you do it again? Yeah, there's a little bit of that. Except for I... the good thing is, I think I was right about net neutrality. In what way? In other words, I think it was the right rule. So the rule that you know, cable and phone companies shouldn't be blocking stuff on the internet. I think it was right, and so it, I still what, believe what, it was right. What, what yeah. do you mean? You think? I mean, it seems like it was. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't. I would have thought that the guy who came up with the term would believe that 
net neutrality. There is nothing bad about it. I'm just saying it would be really torturous if I came up for something and was famous for something that I thought was completely wrong in my heart. You see what I mean? But is there a part of you that thinks net neutrality is wrong or... You know, everyone has, you know, some sense of self-doubt about almost anything you do. And, you know, I've made some very bold statements. And, um, you know, I'm always willing to admit around the edges that there's, you know, reasons for disagreement. So maybe that's just my personality. (laughs) Well, so, okay. So let's, I mean, that's that's actually, I'm glad that you said that because one of the things that I am really confused about is um, how the current head of the FCC, Ajit, is arguing that that taking away net neutrality uh, is actually good for the internet, and right. I and I'm confused as to how you make that argument. And so, can you kind of walk us through a little bit about what they're trying to do? And sure, sure. So he's getting rid. Let's be clear of all the rules governing broadband. So all the rules that say that you know your phone company or cable company have to give you all the internet sites. You know, you could sell a, a in, uh, internet service that like blocked half of it, you know, that only had a couple sites or whatever. So, so yeah. he's, he's, he's getting rid of all the rules that say yep. it. So essentially like um, if I uh, oh, am Comca- Comcast, I could say, oh, well, I don't want anyone to watch Netflix videos. Yeah. And so therefore, and so there'd be no rules that, that, that stop that from happening. Correct. They're, they're required to um, disclose that they're doing so. Hmm. You know, like in the fine print, we are offering a limited product that only has these things, but they can do anything. Mm. Um, and what is the argument for doing that? So you have to put yourself in a position where you think that phone and cable companies are not making enough money. <clears throat> I can't so put my, can anyone put themselves in that position? If you, yes, um, many things are possible in the world of mankind. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them is putting yourself in a position where you think, well, cable and phone companies, uh, I mean, they, they, if they made even more money, then they would invest even more in building more broadband networks. That, that's the idea. So it's based on this idea. Now, it has, it has nothing about the rest of the Internet. This is only broadband and, and you know, phone and cable companies need to make more money. But yeah. don't, don't the, ca- the cable and phone companies make billions of dollars in profit every year? Uh, they do. And so what – sorry if I'm kind of stuttering here. Right. But, so so what's the okay so that's the that's the that's the reason that you know they're putting out there as as the reason what's the real reason is it like is there are there backroom deals going on with lobbyists that you know is it is I think they for a long time the cable and phone industry of of whom chairman Ajit Pai is very closely associated because he was at Verizon right he was at Verizon yeah. have had this mentality that like how come Google Facebook Netflix, how come they get to make all this money, run their businesses without paying us more money? Like, really, this is our network. We own it, sort of property rights kind of thing. And these guys, you know, they get to be the cool darlings of Wall Street, these massive valuations. You know, we did all the work of stringing the wires. Like, give me our cut. That's what I think is really, that's been, Mm. you know, since like 2005, when Ed Whitaker, the head of AT&T, said, Something like, you know, those folks think they're going to use my pipes for free, but, you know, they got to pay up. And so I think that's part of it. And part of it also goes back to the old, this is my first book, The Master Switch, the old kind of AT&T, Ma Bell, Monopoly perspective, which is we need to sort of 
own what happens on the network. And, and that ideology is still in some way uh, strong within these companies. And so how does it play out for consumers? Is there a world in which it is actually beneficial or is it mostly just bullshit and we end up in a situation where if you're on Comcast, you can't get Netflix? Well, let me try and give the best version of the argument. So maybe they, you know, extract more money out of Netflix and uh, and Google and YouTube and everybody else. And so they, they grab that money and maybe they think, well, now we have this money, we're going to build even faster networks or something like that. Um, I would say lowering prices, but they never lower their prices, so they, they're not going to do that. So that, that would be the most positive version of the story. The problem is the consumer, however, would still be paying more for Netflix. You see, one thing that will happen for the consumer is they'll hide their price increases in a price increase in Netflix or maybe Google having more ads or Facebook having more ads, you see, because they're mm. going to try and pass on costs to them. So that's part of the, the idea. So like, no, matter, no matter how it works out, we, the consumer, get screwed. I think so because, you know, the cable companies have gone pretty far with the cable bill. You know, once it hits, you know, c- competing with how much food you have, people don't want to pay more. Uh, but if you can hide your increases in the cable bill in the Netflix bill mm. or in sort of the ad bills of, of Google, you can you can hide some of your increases. Um, and so do you think as a lawyer, do you think that this is actually going to go through Ajit's um – proposal or how do you think it's going to play out well i don't i don't want to spend too much into this but i clearly he's gonna he has no concern about public opposition so that's not gonna stop him congress i mean when people say congress uh, should do something that's another excuse for like (laughs) yeah that's another way of saying uh uh should can that idea but um the the real key is the court's so if an agency takes a takes a federal agency has a rule, you know, been in place for for decades now, um, and then they suddenly completely reverse it, they need to give a pretty good rationale for doing so. They mm. have to explain, okay, what changed, what has, what was wrong with what we were doing before. And if you look at the like like last twenty years, there's nothing wrong. The internet's been growing like crazy, huge amount of money. It's the golden goose of the U.S. economy. So you know why are you taking the golden goose to the slaughterhouse? You got to give us a a reason, and I don't think he's got much other than this investment, sort of, you know, milk toast, uh, uh, um, you know, the, these uh, bromides about, oh, we just need more investment. And so, could a court strike that down? Court can or, strike it down. And which kind of court would it be? Federal court. And um, and could this is could this be something that then goes all the way up the could court go, system? Could go Supreme Court. Um, so, how do you think it's going to play out? I think court will strike it down. You do. Uh, and then I think it'll be a question. So I think it's two big questions. So one is, while they're figuring it out in the courts, do the new rules, the, the lack of rules take effect, or do the old rules stay in effect? That's one big question. And so just two more questions yeah. on this, and, sure. and then we'll move on, and so you don't have to sing your, uh, your <laughs> famous uh, BG song anymore. Um, uh-huh. In your office over here, I see um, a framed picture of the Supreme Court and the um, behind justices. A- Behind a robot, looks like. Behind a little uh, robot next to a, what is that? A colorful-looking uh, rodent or something? <laughs> yeah. Uh, next to the Fundamentals of Antitrust Law um, book. Um, if you had to look at the Supreme Court today, if they were to be faced with this, um, uh, would they mm. vote 
in favor of the FCC or would they vote in favor of the consumer? Very hard question. It has a lot to do with what the agents, what the court, not what they think about net neutrality, but what they think about agencies changing their mind. And, you know, that's an issue that kind of divides conservatives and, and liberals in confusing ways. Nonetheless, the, the big uh, decisive force, as in many things, is Justice Kennedy, mm. who has the, the ruling opinion on this particular question. But he sometimes said, agency, you got to explain why you're changing your rule now. Like, what is it? And so I, I think it might, I think that uh, the FCC would lose, but I think it'd be very close. Okay, so my last question on this topic is, Ajit worked for Verizon, yeah. came over to the FCC. Right. It, 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 is, is this like a, hey guys, I'll be right back in, a, in four years to hold this seat and make it, keep it warm? Um, I'm going to go do us all a good favor by pretending to be uh, in, in, in it for the public service and then I'm coming back. Is, is that the end goal for him? You know, he's said to have political ambitions as well. I don't think he's doing a lot to endear himself to the public, but he is said to have those. On the other hand, it cannot escape anyone's notice that those who've been kind to cable and phone companies tend to migrate into jobs that usually pay in the seven figures afterwards. And those who are mean to them end up at think tanks where maybe they make (laughs) $100,000. So there is this... (laughs) You know, factor of 10 difference. Uh, Mike, Michael Powell is sort of a friend of the industry. I think he makes three or four million a year wow. at, the, at the cable industry. So, you know, that tends to have, you know, if you're a person who believes you're independent from all influence, try on a multi-million dollar salary versus a multi-hundred thousand dollar salary. And it does affect some people. <sighs> okay, can we talk about something uplifting now? Let's see. Um, so, uh, before you, um, uh, before we get to your your book, Attention Merchants, um, uh, one of the things that was so fascinating about the master switch was talking about how um, these there are companies that exist like AT and T and so on that start off in kind of like an experimental. Uh, we're trying to disrupt. Yeah. something and then become the big bad villain. Right. Um, and it seems to me that um, there's a lot of people questioning uh, and, you know, antitrust rules were put in place for AT&T, correct? Right. Um, there's a lot of people questioning if these things are going to happen with these tech companies. Um, right. You know, you've got Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, things like that. Um can you give us a kind of a lay of the land as to wh- where we are as far as antitrust goes that affects these tech companies? Sure. Well, let me uh, say a little bit about the book's theory because it's related, which is, uh, you know, I think tech uh, media industries go through these giant cycles uh, that, as you said, are centered around a big invention, often by a startup or tiny company. Uh, AT&T was a tiny company <laughs> once upon a time, or it was called Bell after Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, obviously, Google was a tiny company, Facebook, um, Microsoft, you name it. They're small. They have some really revolutionary, really important idea. Uh, they they have disrupt the entire industry. Everything's up for grabs. Uh, but that only tends to last for like 10 or 20 years. And then almost by power of gravity or, or economics or something, or like Terminator, the movie. Remember Terminator 2? <laughs> like all the pieces start to come pieces, together, yeah, yeah. come together and become this, this behemoth one way or another. Off, sometimes it's the original company like Bell. 
Sometimes it's someone who came slightly later. Google came slightly later, although they were had some great ideas. Um, and you see this predictable cycle, and maybe it's every 30 years or a 30-year cycle or something like that. Now, where does that cycle end? Um, once you have the giant company, sometimes they become so entrenched, so you res- uh, resistant to competition, that they can last almost forever unless government steps in and breaks them up. And that has happened a few times. What, so what are the times? Um, so AT&T was smashed into, into eight pieces. Um, uh, the theater uh, industry, the old uh, studio system, was broken into pieces. Um, and there's uh, many other examples. In some ways, Microsoft was at least sufficiently chastised that but they became... Uh-huh. But Microsoft was never broken they up. They weren't broken up. They wanted to break them up. But how did they how did they not end up doing that? Uh, well, the Bush administration came to power. Got and it. they said, well, you know, we shouldn't. But they, they, nonetheless, I would say Microsoft was chastised, became more of a gentle giant. Got it. Which is something that happens. Um, IBM, in fact, was chastised by a big antitrust suit in the 70s. So there's a history of this kind of thing. So... So before we get to, to Amazon and so on and so forth, um, uh, when these companies are broken up or chastised, um, what is to, you know, we're now kind of back at a point where AT&T and Time Warner uh, merger is going to happen. You know, it is right. it is once again a behemoth. What is to stop that from happening? You mean the mergers? Yeah, and, they, and them growing to the size that they end up re-becoming. Well... Same thing, the antitrust law and the Justice Department, um, if they are in a trust-busting mood, will both break up companies and then prevent them from recombining. Got it. And maybe that's what's going on right now. The Justice Department, as you know, is trying to block this merger. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we're all, – all things have their season, and I think we're back in an era where there's a lot more suspicion of size and, and power. And you have to also see that, you know, government gets kind of jealous – Government's like, wait a second, I am the big dog around here. <laughs> you know, what is it with a company that's more powerful than, than government? So occasionally that's a, a motive uh, too. And I, I want to suggest, so I, I talked about the cycle in the book. And, you know, when I was writing the book, it was in the, uh, you know, 2006, 7, 8. And everyone's like, are you kidding me? Google becoming a big company? They're just like this little startup, you know, <laughs> in, in, in five years, the next thing will supplant them. You were around in those days. Yeah. There was the idea that, like, competition would never end. There'd never be big companies or there would be lasting companies. Yahoo. Well, there, lost, was the, yeah. there was the idea then that there would be, yeah, you should say there was Google, Yahoo, you know, there were more than one YouTube video site. Right. There was, you know, there was multiple social networks. Yeah, the next guy in the garage is going to destroy Facebook. The only difference is Facebook bought that guy, Instagram. Or he destroyed <laughs> or destroyed them. Snapchat. Yeah, Snapchat. So those next guys these days are either coming out of the basement and then being beaten back into the basement, or they get acquired like, like Instagram. So there's um, a different narrative, uh, one that follows classic uh, examples. But I think the time is ripe. The season is here, both publicly, somewhat in government, depends on... Trump administration would be possible to predict, but of of the age of the big breakup or the big case coming back. And so who do you think they are going to go after? Uh, I mean, like, 
there's been a lot of talk of Amazon, but then right. when you look at the numbers with Amazon, you know, they only have a small percentage of retail in the United States because of Walmart and other places like that. Right. So they kind of get to they are they are not the master of one universe; they're a master of many. Yeah. Um. Uh. You know. Facebook, of course, has been in a lot of trouble because of the fake news stuff and uh, the way they're kind of manipulating ads on the network and so on. Like, who is the DOJ? I guess this is a two-part question. Like, who do you think the DOJ is going to go after? Right. And is the DOJ going to go after anyone in the Trump administration? Right. Um, let me ask, answer the, the first. The first presumes that, let's say something will happen. You know, who who would they go after? I um my personal opinion is that the company that seems like it's cruising for a bruising is Facebook. And I say that for for a couple reasons. One is that um when enforcers are thinking of taking a, a company or taking them on, you know, they're interested in what is the company doing for consumers or or the public and who are they killing? <laughs> mm-hmm. right, that, those are kind of two things. Yeah, and um, you know, in Amazon's case, a lot of people hate Amazon, but there's a lot of people who love Amazon too. And a lot of what Amazon does is sell stuff for cheaper, which is also the point of the antitrust laws. So they have this challenge. Now they are killing a lot of, and you know, they're. Is the strongest case comes to the idea that they're killing, you know, retailers or killing small business and killing valuable components. But they're also killing a lot of the um, maybe some people deserve to die. Maybe the big boxes deserve to die. Maybe Borders' time was come. You know, so there's there's some feeling about Amazon that's ambiguous. Now Facebook, on the other hand, um, you know, um, fine company in some ways, but. They aren't doing that same disruption of arguably dead wood. In fact, what they seem to be killing are companies that are young and new and trying new things. And Facebook seems to be you know, out for them or trying to dry up their, their investment income. And they also, as you suggested earlier, have kind of developed a bad karma, yeah. <laughs> which I think matters. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Facebook is this thing that feel, no one feels like can quit but I don't like love them, and I think that actually kind of matters. So you think that the fact that uh, all of everyone I know on planet Earth hates their Facebook account but still has it, right? That affects a potential antitrust. It kind of does. It just this. I mean, obviously, everything supposed to come. Everything does kind of come down to the law and the economics and so forth. But yeah. I think these, you know, someone's got to decide. All right, we want to do this case, and no one wants to be in a situation where they're attacking a great company that has done a lot for people hmm. and like ends up making people's lives worse. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be in that, that position. So do you think that, so if you were, and if I could back up on that, I mean, I think you feel, a lot of people feel like maybe Facebook needs some competition. You yeah. Know? No, have was, you ever had that intuition? Sorry. To, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that was going to be my question. So if you were advising Mark Zuckerberg, who is doing everything he can to copy Snapchat, for example, and destroy Snapchat and has actually it looks like it's he's being successful at this point after m- multiple attempts. Would you advise him not to do that? Depends on, you know, from what perspective, from the public's perspective or from his perspective. Well, I mean, the worst thing that happened to Facebook would be uh, would be 
some sort of antitrust suit or regulation or something like that, right? So it seems like you're better at letting making sure that there are at least one or two floundering right smaller companies than than none. Yeah, except for they could actually get disrupted because their product is not that great. Right. I mean that's Facebook's one, product. Facebook's product. Yeah. And that's one challenge they have. And I think their deepest insecurity. I mean, there's not that much to it. Right? What they've got is everybody. But you know, okay, so I'm seeing my friends' photos. Like that's not magic. Email does that. So they have this kind of problem. They've got everyone's data, but that's not even that great either. So yeah, I think they have a more fundamental insecurity than some of the other firms. I think Google thinks, like, if I go toe-to-toe with Bing, I can take them. I'm not sure that Facebook's confident that they, they, can't, be, they can't be beat, and that's why I think they need to, to you know, man the battlements, and I think that's going to get them in trouble. It's interesting. You're not the first person who, even on the podcast, who said that. We had Scott Galloway on a few weeks ago, and he just wrote the book, The Four, um, and he said the same thing that that he oh there it is on your desk um <clears throat> next to the other smiling waving cat um uh um statue y- you know he he said the same thing that that facebook he believes is um is is really in trouble as far as uh potential whether it's in europe or america but um, right. but they're the one he thinks that and you know it wouldn't have to go to a breakup i mean part of what you do what happens is sometimes the investigation you know gets underway Maybe they get some measures going that you 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 open the market enough to competition, so that some of Facebook's challengers and I don't know if it's Snap or, or the next Snap or someone else, you know, take take their shot. Could there be a world where, let's just say hypothetically, they were broken up? Would that mean that Facebook would have to say, "Here, Instagram, you go off and do your own thing," and so then Instagram could then become a competitor of Facebook? Yeah. Wow. It would be a dis- that would be a progressive style dissolution, progressive era, like 1910s. And WhatsApp would become another company. So, <laughs> so all these like you know parts of Facebook would, of Empire would sort of float into their own uh, existence. And then some some roboticist would have to come and dismantle Mark Zuckerberg and <laughs> put him back together in the laboratory somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so back to that other part of the question: Do do you, is there any reason that the Trump administration would push for this? So, I feel like trying to predict the P- Trump administration. Yeah. Uh, is challenging. I think I would look more specifically at the Justice Department and the FTC, the agencies that are enforcing this law and what, what, what they're about. You know, the, the heads of those agencies, when they get there, um, you know, some of them just say, all right, I'll just sit here. But some of them kind of want to make their mark or, or do their thing. And we're getting signs from the Justice Department that it, it's interested in, in, you know, trying to, to do something about the level of concentration in, in the United States. Now, what are those signs? Well, they're blocking, they're trying to block the AT&T Time Warner merger. It's a massive case. It's um, not, a, not a trivial t- case to be taking on. And we don't know anything from the FTC yet, but that, that's, we've seen some signs of life from, from the Justice Department. And partially it's because, you know, things work in cycles, as I said. And for almost 20 years, there's been relatively weak antitrust enforcement. You know, Microsoft being a, well, the end of Microsoft, a partial exception. But even through most of the Obama administration, antitrust enforcement has been uh, limited or weak. And so the company has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more and more concentrated. And so all the cases look easier. And 
Do you think that, I mean, we, we had um, uh, the Vanity Fair Summit last month. Um, Randall Stevenson was on stage being interviewed um, uh, by Stephanie Meadow, my colleague, and, and he didn't see, he seemed kind of, you know, nonchalant about the FTC trying to block it. He seemed like he had the lawyers and he has the, the resources. Should he be worried or? Yeah, I think he will. Uh, <laughs> I think that, uh, well, I mean, it's hard to call these cases. I don't have the data in front of me, but they did sue. Um, Justice Department isn't usually very reckless. They lose sometimes, but they win a lot too. And so, um, you know, it's like Trump saying, oh, Mueller's got nothing. Mueller's got nothing. You know, I'm just saying that uh, people say that kind of thing. Because when they, someone has something. When something has something. <laughs> um, and they've got something. Can I say just briefly yeah, what they course. got? I mean, the biggest thing they, they, the biggest thing they got is, you know, they own DirecTV, uh, which has all these subscribers. And they've got uh, – it, Time Warner has things like HBO and um, – uh, the uh, final four, March Madness, and so the idea is that you know they they hold that back from from Dish, their competitor, or they they say, hey, why don't we triple the prices on these? How do you feel about that Dish? And you know, and, and try and push Dish out of a serious competition. So I, you know, they, it's not a crazy case. Hmm. So you were um, uh, you were in the White House um, in the Obama administration. Um, were you working on any of these antitrust? cases or were you or is this something you can't talk about or you'd have to kill me <laughs> so uh the white house doesn't um directly involve itself with the justice department something we've seen <laughs> you know the trump administration <laughs> trying to break those rules yeah, uh, yeah. but but that so we were not but i was working in competition policy i was trying to um uh push uh, i was trying to push for um Using the power of of government, try and jumpstart competition the whole ways, and also push antitrust enforcement, S- staying with the limit of not telling the Justice Department directly what to do, which we're not allowed to do. How do you do that by not telling them what to do? Do you like leave a a note on someone's doorstep and scurry away in the middle of the night, or uh, that <laughs> the stuff I was doing was not related to enforcement decisions. Got it. It was more related to like, hey, there's some rule here that's blocking this industry for competition. I'll give you one brief example. It's like I was working on hearing aids. So hearing aids, you know, tech industry sort of, um, you know how much they cost? So the no. components cost like 100 bucks. The hearing aids cost 3000 bucks each and wow. like can be a total of 6000 Why? There's only like two or three companies who make them. You know, they haven't changed technology. They require you to go do all these special fittings or something like that. And I mean... You don't get those kind of fittings for shoes. <laughs> and, you know, they're pretty basic products. Uh, you could probably uh, make one yourself if you're tech enough. Oh, but no, you need the special thing. So we're trying to blow open that market, for example, by making it possible from, you know, Apple, let's say, to make a hearing aid. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of thing I was doing, trying and to break open markets to competition. Did, did, did anyone start making new hearing aids? or The is rule there... is still going on. I, I'm, I'm, you know, knocking on wood because that seemed a really important market well, to me. What do you mean by the rule? What's the rule that says... That that someone can't go make a hearing aid. Uh, there's an FDA rule that classifies it as a, a medical device, even though it's just a speaker. Well, you know, so are contact lenses, or so are you know pacemakers. Yeah, so you know, it was classified as a, a, and only certain companies are licensed to make them, and blah blah blah. So this one area, you know, hearing aids, really, as you said, just a speaker, where there's almost no competition, no. 
no progress, no nothing. So in the White House, my job was like looking for things like this, trying to do something about them. I also worked in beer. That was really interesting. What was the beer case? So in beer, the you know unnoticed to most of the uh, world, um, the uh, and I, this is uh, public. Our work in this area, uh, the beer industry, mainstream beer had consolidated in the United States into two companies, owned seventy four percent of beer, and they had proposed to consolidate into one company. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, um, and. Uh, Actually, both foreign companies, uh, one British, one Belgium, all American domestic beers owned by, by foreign companies. Uh, I don't know if that's well known. Anheuser-Busch uh, uh, was bought out by, by a Belgian brewery. And um, we were basically trying to protect craft brewing, <laughs> who kind of was like the startup of industry, of from, from, from the foreign uh, buyers, or at least uh, you know, give them a fair shake. So that was, that was public, and uh, you know, we made some, some progress in that area. As well, and and so did the. Uh, can you go and make your own craft beers now, and it's not a problem, or is it still kind of going uh, through the craft beer's been doing well? I was we were trying to make sure because craft beer has this thing called a better product. <laughs> People like the beer better. Yeah. Once they get into it, they don't <clears throat> usually go back. Yeah. Right. So they had the advantage. The question is whether we could. They, they were starting to the the, the big duopoly was trying to do stuff like mess with distribution outlets or you know say you have to take our version of the craft beer you can't take the other craft beers because they have their own craft beers now so here's the question i have and I, maybe i'm asking i maybe there is no answer for this but what the fuck is wrong with these people like when you talk about like the the <laughs> I, it just boggles my mind like you talk we talked about earlier about the 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 cell phone companies wanting and the, the the cable companies wanting more money the you know these beer distributors trying to screw these little like mom and pop people even the tech companies you know trying to trying to make sure that Snapchat doesn't compete with them or that no little company will don't I mean they have enough money they have enough power like what is it that drives these people have you have you come across any any key influence that you've seen in all of your time doing law and writing books on these people? You know, who who knows what dwells in the heart of, of mankind? I think it's kind of a, I guess a sort of insecurity is a strange word, but a fear of being displaced that is, is very powerful. Um, so, you know, you, you make it. At one point, you're the young darling. You know, it's like Facebook or something. You're the hot company, and you, you make it. And um, and you're in power. Uh, and for a while, usually companies, I think, are right when they get to power. There's almost a golden age where they're good. They keep inventing new things. But then next thing you know, they're getting a little older. New things appear on the horizon. You know, somehow Budweiser isn't the cool beer anymore or Facebook's no longer the product that young people use. So they kind of start to rigidify and want to stay in power. Now, now economically, it's just that they want to hold on to the money that they have. But I think that, that that's what happens. And um, yeah, I don't, I mean, why do people want to do things? Same question is, uh, you know, why does anyone do something that doesn't seem right? Yeah. So do you think that there's, so there was a world a long time ago where, maybe it was a long, long time ago, where there weren't just essentially four big companies, right. you know, um, where there were lots of little companies and lots of mom and pop companies and even some medium sized ones and so on and so forth. And it seems that um, that 
those have all kind of been mopped up. Um, and, you know, you walk down, even just walking down the streets of New York this week, right. seeing store after store after store with for rent signs and for lease signs and so on. It's, you've seen this, we've seen this happen and you have clearly knew it was coming years ago. Um, but we've also kind of seen a rise of, of little little mm-hmm. companies like you know people that make bespoke you know shoes right. or farmers markets or little restaurants right. and things is there is that a big enough pushback that it could disrupt the massive giants or is it just something that we're just seeing on the east and west coast a little bit you know i'm sort of eternally optimistic but i don't think you can just hope it happens by itself that, that's what I'm convinced by. I think it's too optimistic to say, well, you know, I've got a farmer's market in my neighborhood, so I don't have to worry about you know, massive consolidation of, of industries because the big guys usually have the means and the incentive to, to stay in power and try and keep down the little. You know, this really goes back to the progressive era and bigness, <laughs> the curse of bigness, you know, and how we feel about bigness. And I, I feel that you need an active program that fights bigness, like antitrust, like, you know, controls over mergers, in order to give the little guys a shot, in order to keep the economy sort of dynamic and feel like a land of opportunity and not feel like something where, you know, your life is, okay, which giant corporation am I going to go work at? You know, and I think that's actually very deep and part of the American spirit. This is supposed to be sort of the land of opportunity where people come here to start a little business. But we're always in danger of becoming the land of big, giant, huge firms where you work at, you know, somewhat robotic fashion. And that, I think, is one of the greatest tensions in this country's history. And do you think that there are solutions beyond just antitrust that will help stop bigness? Yes, there's cultural. Uh, There's culture and and norms and how people make their their buying decisions, what they decide to do with their lives. Um, You know... Now, often it's disguised, but, you know, what you buy can make a big difference, what you patronize. um, And ultimately, even people running these companies, how they decide to spend their life, whether people decide, you know, who are talented to to try the next thing and break into something new or whether, you know, all the people of talent and ability stay at at the big companies. I think that's a big difference. Do you have your consumer habits changed um, reporting this new book or even, you know, looking at some of these cases and so on and so forth? Yeah, I think so. You know, I was buying myself glasses the other day. And, um, you know, this is a very small thing. But I I kind of think, and I decided to buy from this, this sort of local store in my neighborhood. I don't know if it's going to save them. But I, I've started to think of replacing the word spending with the word supporting. Hmm. You know, like I sort of think, okay, who am I supporting when I when I do this? Now, look, I'm not... Mr. Pure, I don't live in Portland. You know, I use Amazon to buy. I have kids and stuff. I, I, I couldn't live without uh, stuff showing up on my doorstep. So I'm like, I, I'm not walking the uh, primrose path perfectly. But I do think hard about what I'm supporting. I like that. That's a, that's a new way of thinking about it, of spending versus supporting. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's move on to your... It makes me feel good about wasting money. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I, no, it's a big deal. It's, it's like you think no, of everything, really everything I, like a charitable donation, right? Because if you give money to charity, you're like, well, why am I doing this? I'm not doing it for myself. But really, our consumer spending is not really that different in some ways. No, it's, it is a, it's a big deal. It's, I, I struggle with it a lot, as you said. Like I have kids, 
And there is no greater resource in my life than being able to order diapers at at 10 o'clock at night and know they're going to be there on the doorstep in the morning right. when the kids wake up and and, and the, you know, and a million things in between. Um, but at the same time, you know, I have a friend who's a farmer and, you know, he is competing with a company that Amazon owns. Right. And um, uh, and so it's difficult trying to make those decisions and, and, and try to do so, you know, in a way that is helpful to society at the same time, you know? I think it's time for a kind of society-wide rethinking or even personal rethinking about big things and small things in our lives, you know, <laughs> what things are good small, what things are good big. Um, there was this book in the 70s called Small is Beautiful that I, I liked. And, you know, I think about this with schools or with, um, you know, places to work or anything you do, like, you know, airports, <laughs> you know, when things get too big, often they, they become kind of inhuman. On the other hand, things are too small, they're unstable. But, uh, I think it's really worth thinking about, not assuming that the way things are are the way they should be. Well, I think when we start our uh, beer and hearing aid company, it will be <laughs> probably medium size, not too yeah. big, not too small. Yeah. All right. So, so your your latest book, The Attention Merchants, um, from the daily newspaper to social media, how our time and attention is harvested and sold. What brought you to this book? That's a great, great question. So, I'll say two things. Um, first. When I wrote my last book, I felt like there was something really missing, the role of advertising, content, you know, things like what what was the story? I mean, I try to write these stories, books about the 20th century. Yeah. I'm sort of retelling the 20th century. I think the 20th century was a really strange uh, period of time. Wait till, they, wait till you see what they're going to say about this century. I know. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> but I think it was weird and it was interesting. And so this is really actually part of a trilogy about the 20th century and the most important things in it. And the biggest, some of the biggest changes were in media and, frankly, our information environment, what we're exposed to. And the rise of this business model, advertising-driven media, I think is a, a massive uh, change in how everybody uh, lived. So that was one reason. I also personally um, noticed that my attention seemed kind of weird. I started to change. I often would you know, go sit down in front of the computer, try to with the idea of writing an email, and then suddenly notice like three or four hours had gone by. I'd be like, what is going on here? You know, and... Uh, Why am is... I reading about bees on Wikipedia? Yeah, what's happened here? And I... This is going to sound a little cheesy, but I, it is true. I, I went to the desert <laughs> in Utah for a week by myself before having kids. And um, I had this idea. I'm going to write a book about attention because I was just sitting out there and it... Did you go, to, did you go to the desert in Utah to try to think about why you would sit at your computer for three hours and not be able to write an email, or was was that part of it? That's a better version of the real story. I just kind of thought it would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read something about... Who who wrote it? Maybe it was... Um, uh, some guy was saying, you know, man needs to spend time by himself alone in nature for a long period to figure out who he is. And I thought, oh, I like the desert. I've got a week. So you just it? went out... Which desert? Uh, so... Uh, Canyonlands, Utah. And so, what, did you did you stay somewhere? Did you yeah. camp out? I just got a tent and I put it down, and you that know, was it. Yeah. Did you bring a book or? No, I decided not to bring any books. So, what did you do? Sat around. Just walked by yourself. Yeah. Did you have? Were there people near you or? No. <laughs> just me. <laughs> was the, and did you uh, did you what was the experience like? Was there like a metamorphosis that took place over that week or? Well, there was a big change. So I did expect um, 
I thought I'd be more bored, but I, w I wasn't bored. I, I don't know why, but I wasn't bored. Um, and the main thing I thought is that I felt time was very different out there than I thought. You know, it would a day sometimes felt like a whole week wow. or, or a month, and I or then a whole day would go by in an instant. And I sort of felt. Uh, and in case you want to ask, there was no hallucinogenic drugs involved. <laughs> I was going to say, did you do any uh, ayahuasca ceremonies? No, or? nothing like that. I just thought the desert had enough on its own. And um, yeah, it actually seems, now that I have kids and stuff, it seems kind of like a crazy thing to do. But, you know, I thought, when am I going to have another chance? And so so the end of this trip, did you come back and think to yourself, I'm going to, ch was there a big profound change that took place or was there just an idea for a book? Like everything, it wears off after a while. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it made me think that attention is a very valuable resource, like something you have and are something very strange about the way we spend our time. And it made me, it kind of committed me to this idea of, of thinking about how I spend my attention more, more carefully. I was very moved by this uh, philosopher, William James, who um, uh, was a 19th century, late 19th century philosopher. Uh, and he had this line where he said, you know, at the end of your life, um, paraphrasing, uh, what you will have paid attention to, that is your life experience. Like, that's your life. <laughs> Nothing else. Mm. You can describe it any other way, but like that series of information or whatever it was, that is it. And it made me think about that and made me get interested in these attentional decisions, so to speak, and um, yeah, in some ways changed my life. I, you know, I don't think I've like achieved any magical enlightenment, but I do think about um, just where I spend my attention. And do you, um, did, did, do you use social media and technology in that, like, uh, did you before <laughs> the desert or? I, I mean, I'm a tech guy, so I almost feel I have to, and I like it. I, I, I like, uh. For example, I like Twitter for some reason, and um, mixed feelings about Facebook. Um, but it doesn't. It, it, you know. I mean, I I've been through struggling with this for yeah. for a long time. Where there's you know there's a big part of me that would love to throw my phone in, into the East River and right. um, and that's it. But at the same time, I want to be able to take pictures of my kids and, right. and I need to know how to get here when I have a meeting with you or, you know, there are, there, there are these, there's this, this war that's going on. And it's, I'm not, I'm not alone. This is a conversation I have at dinner with people all the time. Yeah. Um, have you, did, did this experience kind of make you put your phone down more? Did it? It made me zone my life a lot more. And how do you, how did you do So that? in other words, I have areas where like no devices are allowed. Basically, most of my house. What do you, so? What's do you put? Does your phone go in your bag when you get home? Well, or I plug it in, or something, but I don't use it. Let's say. Uh, now, kids help with this because they're pretty intolerant of all the stuff. Uh, and then I have times, actually, frankly, again, delineated mostly by children, uh, that are like you know device free. I think that's hard. I think it's too hard to try to expect yourself to have some kind of self control enough to, to fight these. Uh, they fight the power of these tendencies. I also noticed. That, or I still notice that, um, well, I don't use social media. I'm more careful about other, I do use social media, but I'm, you know, limited in it. And other tools I've changed, like, you know, I use different word processors that just like a dark screen and writing on it so I can sort of focus. Uh, one of the things that drives me crazy about our current technologies is there, even though there are our main tools, even though we are tool using creatures, often I feel like they're 
kind of half on our side and half against us. Oh, completely. You know, and it's a crazy, yeah, crazy. Like, you know, if we think earlier on, imagine you had like, you know, like a chainsaw that had a screen on it or something. So, you know, you watch ads, you'd cut your leg off. But, you know, our, we have technologies like that. So I, I kind of yearning and wanting. There are There is a backlash going on. But for technologies that are respectful of, of us as humans and have like our goals in mind. I remember I remember when the Nintendo Wii um, came out and uh, we hooked it up in, in our office at the New York Times and and we were playing it and people were taking in turns doing like the tennis game and about like a half an hour in there was this thing that popped up and that said you've been playing for half an hour maybe you should go outside for a little bit. <laughs> and I thought that was it was it was so refreshing. We didn't right. go outside, we continued playing. Right. But it was so refreshing and I and I completely agree with you. I mean, you know, I I almost wish that there was like a a a button I could press on my laptop which which would only allow the word processor to work for 4 sure, hours or something sure. like that. Or when it comes to social media, the problem is the experience is not discrete. It doesn't end. Yeah. Right? And I I'm not the only one to say this, but you know, it would be nice if, you know, you did Facebook for 10 minutes and it was over and you knew it was over and it felt complete. And instead, you know, it's as you know, been designed or engineered to never feel complete. There's always something more, you know, like a casino where you always want to put one more bet. There's no like ending point. <laughs> like I think we're trying to compose poetry in a casino half the time, you know, in our in our working lives. Like look at this thing right here. It's like wanting me to work, but it wants to drag me towards all kinds of other things and yeah. like yeah. So so when mm-hmm. you look back in for in this book, um uh the did did we experience this with you know with other forms of media before, or has it always been just the kind of newer technologies? No, I think that that's what I think this book is really interesting uh, to learn from is that attention has been a contested resource, you know, since the really since the early twentieth century, um, and there's been a slow story of always trying to get it, but you know, increasingly sophisticated techniques to do so and um, invasion of more spaces in which to do so. You know, so once upon a time, ads were in newspapers and magazines. That was it, one tiny part of life. But they were ingenious in their own ways. Uh, you know, I look at, like, the old um, the old campaigns for, for mouthwash, and uh, they're intended to, f- to scare women by suggesting they'll never get married if they have bad breath or things like that. And you're know, like, wow, they, they, these guys were not, these guys, yeah. they weren't playing around, you know, they were, they were serious. So there's always been these incredible techniques. And the question is they're spread into more of our lives. So it went from just the newspapers and magazines to billboards to subway ads to... To radio. Radio is the big step because then you're inside people's houses. And a big part of my book is the invention of prime time, <laughs> like these rituals where... Every day after after dinner, you sort of sit down, watch TV, but also watch all the ads. And, you know, uh, that is a real – these kind of rituals or habits are really important to, to the conquest of our minds. What was the – you know, um, you've written, you know, three books now. You're And you've done a tremendous amount of research into the 20th century. What have been some of the things that were kind of, you know, like that mouthwash ad, but what have been some of the things that have – You've just been like, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> There's a lot. 20th century is crazy. Um, you know, just take a random day in 1956 or something, and it's it's uh, Monday night, and like 70 million people are sitting down to watch. Everyone, first of all, 100 and something million sit down to watch TV, 
and then 70 million are watching I Love Lucy. You know, that's crazy. Wow. Look at that. You know, I mean, now it's like, oh, Game of Thrones got, you know, 10 yeah. million people. This is like seven, and we have many more people now. It's like the Super Bowl every day. And just imagine what that would be like, where you could know, going into work, whatever, that everyone had seen the same thing last night. It's no <laughs> wonder the country feels more, for better or for worse, much more fragmented now. Back then, it was like we're all in the same tiny uh, little world. Um, what else is crazy about <laughs> uh, 20th uh, century? I think um, we will look back at some of our habits with you know, the devices and te- technologies. The same way we kind of look back at the 80s and tanning salons where you would be like, oh, okay, I'll just sit under UV light for three hours and um, That's really, there uh, won't be any like problems with that, I guess, right? It's like, oh, I'll just be, you know, kind of quasi-addicted to half of these devices or, or, you know, or some of the video games that really get people addicted and be like, yeah, I'm fine. It's, it's, it's That's the tanning salons of our day. All right, so this podcast would not be complete without some sort of discussion about Donald Trump. <laughs> you said to me before we started recording earlier that, that Trump has has figured out the way to capture our attention almost in ways that I don't think I've ever seen a human being be capable of before. Yeah. I mean, it is – it's astounding. I mean, if you look at the top stories of the year on any news site this – you know, in December, um, if you look at Twitter's mm-hmm. most tweeted about people, all every single solitary thing right. points to Trump. And it has been going on for now two-plus years. Yeah. How, how does he do it? Yeah, I think he's the, at some level the king of all attention merchants, that he – melded together the once disparate roles of and well-established ones of the giant magnate with all the money the celebrity uh, on tv and the president of the country the, the leading politician and put those all together and almost like nuclear fusion created a a, a, nu- a bomb attentional bomb of the kind that's never been seen uh, before and you are exactly right it's like the only thing I can compare it to is when, you know, like, a disco tune becomes popular and everyone's and you hear it everywhere you go, <laughs> you know, and you can't get it out of your head. Um, but you eventually get sick of the disco tune, and it doesn't seem like people are sick of listening to this disco tune yet. Not yet. Although um, that could ha- – that, I think, if he has a downfall – well, when he has a downfall, sometimes I think it'll be less like Nixon and more like Paris Hilton, who never really – a person like Paris Hilton – or Trump, they don't downfall in the usual ways of scandal. Actually, scandal helps them. Just people kind of start to forget or or get sick of them, and he may fade, but not yet. Right now, the show is running red hot. Um, I think he always understood, both in his business um, and especially in politics, that you always need to win the war for attention first. And he understood kind of an essence of reality television is that win or lose is not the relevant criteria for that. And in fact, a spectacular loss can be a massive attentional win. And so he understands that. So he blunders into massive errors and scandals and embarrassments, um, amplified by the fact that he's the, the leader of the free world, but always wins the attentional game every single time. And after a while, you have to conclude, well, maybe that's the game he's playing. He's in our heads. I mean, I contrast it. I don't go too much of a monologue, but um, when I was inside the White House, I had this sort of realization 
which is, I realized we were having difficulty reaching people in the White House. Hmm. You know, we had a lot of good ideas, um, important policy objectives. Um, and I think I'd always assume, like a lot of people, that, well, if the president says something, everyone listens. But it actually isn't true. You know, the president would give this weekly radio address. Very few people would listen. He, Obama himself, was sort of dignified, but kind of... Um, almost a reclusive person. Uh, you know, he wasn't in your face every day. He wasn't blundering around, embarrassing himself, or doing things that really, you know, he was like playing with his children or doing something appropriate, not not newsworthy stuff. And so he wasn't in people's heads. Hmm. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, I don't know if a president should aspire to be in your head every moment. I don't think anything should aspire to be in your head at any, every moment. Right. Uh, in fact, there's something almost libertarian about that not being the case. Mm. You know, less government maybe means less invasion of the president in our brains. But uh, as a result, though, you know, not everything revolved around what Obama was doing or thinking. In some sense, therefore, he had less power. Hmm. And did you, um, and last couple of questions, uh, um, we'll wrap up. But, um, you know, I remember reading um, there was an article in the New York Times before Trump won. Yeah. And just the fact that we're talking about this kind of negates this whole thing. But um uh and it was there was it was tapes that that they had the Times had gotten from right. Trump's biographer. And there was the at the the kicker of the article, a very long article, was one section where Trump you can you can hear it, you can hear the audio and he seems it seems like he's actually being honest for the first time in a two and a half hour interview. So in this interview Trump um is asked uh, if he ever, you know, if he, he's, he's asked if he ever doesn't like walking into a room and getting the attention that he gets. If he, if for him, there's a moment where he ever walks mm-hmm. in and just doesn't want it, and he wants to just be left alone. And he says, you know, the biggest fear I have is that it will be the opposite. That I won't. That I'll walk into a room one day and people won't give me the attention. Right. And do you think that that we as a society, you know, this is someone who has who angers people in or or gives them hope or you know there is a large percentage of people that feel that way but but is able to drive this divisive thing between us that that makes our blood boil do you think that we will ever just stop paying attention I am eternally optimistic <laughs> <laughs> and I hope that something in our like physiology makes outrage which must be the leading emotion in our lives, eventually too exhausting that people lose interest because that is, I think, on, the only way that Trump loses a lot of his power. There is a real power in winning the headline race every day. Yeah. You know, as I said, I wonder if you go back and look at Obama's presidency, how often the headlines were about Obama. I bet they were once a week and then there would be one. Um, and so it, there's a hold on this, and it's based on our own weakness. Also, frankly, I can't really blame the media. It's it's all of us. We've created a culture that values outrage and is also financially driven by outrage. And now I'm talking about Facebook or Twitter, that that's the, the stuff that, that sells uh, and, and drives the, the model. So um, it was almost predictable. Uh, you know, I be flattering myself to say my book predicted the rise of Trump. In a way, it does, uh, because it makes sense that someone driven more powerfully than anything, than attention, than anything, uh, would be the perfect person to take environment 
uh, take advantage of our current media and tech environment. All right. So, so on that note, last question. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we have seen happen as a result of tech and media and headlines and so on and so forth is that the speed with which we get information happens at, right. in a way that we have never seen before. And the information we get comes from places we've never heard it before. Right. Um, and so we come sometimes look at the news on a daily basis on our on Twitter or whatever, however we get it, and we see about the the murder in this little town in the middle of nowhere and the, the earthquake here and the fires there and the thing that Trump said and the Roy Moore and this, that, and the other. Right. And it seems that it's it, – I'm in the industry and I'm overwhelmed by it. Right. And it, it, do you think that it will ever slow down? Yes. I am optimistic from this book in the human capacity for resistance and backlash – and it's not so much just the information, it's also our appetite for it. And I think, you know, you alluded to some other projects, maybe it won't be ever where at once, but I think a desire for a better life, for one with peace, quiet, and, and some level of sanity, eventually has its, uh, it starts slowly, but eventually has its power, it can deliver us back to a, if not quiet time, quieter time. So I do think we'll, we'll be past this. I have some faith, it's not only in America, but in the human condition, um, to want something different. And I think the signs of a desire for people to reclaim their attention, reclaim their their, their consciousness at some level, uh, are there. And similar to the, you know, the counter-revolution against small, it's almost time for another counterculture, if that makes sense. But it's going to come from a different place and I think lead us in, in different directions. Um, but that's what I am hoping and, and in some sense betting uh, will happen. Well, maybe we'll all have to go to the desert in order for that to happen for a week or, or a year or so. Thank Actually, can I say that they just eliminated some of the park protections near oh, that did, desert? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Not that exact one I was in, but right next to it. So, uh, Well, yeah. you'll always have it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. It's been really fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, Nick. It's John again. I, I got a question for you. Have you ever pondered a world in which you, in some sort of Reichian way, might just go to the woods with a book, tune out Donald Trump and the entire world. You sort of wrote about this on The Hive this week. Do you think that Wu's up to something, or is this just one man's crazy perversion? I, um, I'm actually in the woods right now. I'm naked. <laughs> uh, I have oh, shit, a long... Um, no, I, I'm so jealous that he did that when he was, when I was sitting in his office and he was telling me that he, that he had gone into the desert for a week. I, I mean, there was literally a part of me that wanted to run out, get on a plane, fly to the desert and just live there for a week. I think my kids might be upset. My wife might be a little pissed at me. Um, you might be mad if I didn't, you know, turn mm -hmm. in my work, but, but, but I, you know, in all seriousness, I do think that, um, I knew exactly what he was talking about in that moment and that, um, you know, I, you know, there was a point in time where I would read 70 books a year and now I'm lucky if I get through, you know, five or 10 and, and we pick up our devices and we, and the, the technology companies, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Google, all these companies, people like Donald Trump, um, you know, the media, so on and so forth have figured out how to kind of tap into that thing. Um, and I think that, uh, both the recourse we've seen recently with 
ex-Facebook executives and ex-Twitter executives saying that they don't use the services anymore and that how bad they are for society, and us realizing, you know, this is not the best thing. I think that um, I think that Tim was kind of a year ahead of his time by going out to the desert and realizing this. And I think that while we may not all go out there, um, I think we may try to bring the desert to us a little. Um, and uh, and so it was kind of it was inspiring to hear that. Last question for you: Do you think that? A private enterprise, whether it's a startup or, or a big media company, is actually going to get into the business of like being Facebook or Twitter for people who aren't trolls, racists, making up lies about common pizza. Just a, a, a slightly more um, uh, adult society where you don't have to worry about um, uh, all so much of the garbage that social media has brought into the mainstream culture. Seems like a good I business actually- idea. No, I I actually know people that are working on this. They're working on unsocial apps, you know, where you can still share things and, but you can't see how many people are following you or someone else. You, you know, the whole concept of liking changes in, in really creative ways. There's an app that uh, a friend of mine is actually working on, um, uh, called drops and, and, uh, um, and they, it's fascinating because it's, you know, completely breaks the whole mold of what, um, socialism and, and tries to tries to be unsocial in a way where you can still get access to content. And I think that um, you know there's a there's an old story about the very very early days of the internet where um, some of these first early message boards that were essentially the the precursors to social media they um, uh, they were they were overrun in, instantly with really bad things happening. Um, and uh, and they were shut down uh, eventually, and um, and the people who founded those, you know, said back then, like, we just did this experiment and it didn't work. And I think that we're gonna kind of look back at social media, this iteration of it, and say that didn't work, and there will be something that takes its place. I just hope it happens sooner rather than later. Yeah, me too. So um, so next week, I just want to say I have. Uh, Another incredible guest. Um, uh, you know about Bitcoin, John? Do you know what that is? Bitcoin. Hmm, I, think that's, uh, I think that's a, a sort of cryptocurrency that those knucklehead Winklevi twins are really into, that if I put like a couple dollars in now, it would make me a billionaire in about uh, 45 minutes. Is that the one? Pretty much. Or a billionaire in 45 minutes and then broke about 10 or 12 minutes after that. Uh, why are um, you being such a downer? Uh, well, I actually have um, uh, uh, someone coming on uh, next week who uh, was one of the, the first peop- people to ever tell me about Bitcoin um, over five years ago. Um, and uh, she has uh, run a bunch of cryptocurrency companies. She now runs a $100 million crypto fund. Uh, and she's going to explain what's going on and uh, if it's too late to invest or, or not and um, what the future of all this stuff means. So it's, it's going to be a great conversation. I can't wait, Nick, and I know who else can't wait. Number one Inside the Hive podcast fan, Steve Sin, my father-in-law. He'll be listening. (laughs) If you made it this far. All right, we'll talk next week. All right, thanks, man. Thanks to my guest today, Tim Wu. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and my editor, John Kelly, who's took the time to chat with me today. I will see you all next week.